Lord, we just sang something very big, and I pray today before we begin this sermon that what we sang would not just be an exercise of music, but that it truly would be the mind of the people in this room, that the glory of your name would be the passion of the church, that our joy, our delight, our primary aim would be to lift high the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that you might be magnified. And I pray that as we look to the gospel of Jesus, we would not just see healing balm for our broken hearts and souls, and Father, a cure for our sinful condition, but we would also see the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ doing what only God could do, which is to save sinners. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. In case you haven't noticed yet in this gospel, Jesus was always teaching. He preached five major sermons in this book alone, which were primarily meant to instruct his true followers. He demonstrated his heavenly authority again and again through healings and miracles so as to teach his future witnesses about his divine nature and his kingdom purpose. Whenever Jesus did just about anything, we almost always find him taking at least a few of his disciples with him so that they could observe and learn to understand and then be able to relate it to other people. And here, on the night when he would be betrayed and given into the hands of sinners, he is still at the blackboard while his disciples observe firsthand his terrible grief and his unwavering commitment. Even as he weeps before the Father on this night before his death for sinners, Jesus is teaching. And among other things, Jesus teaches here what to do when the hour of sorrow comes. Matthew presents us here in this passage with a very clear contrast between, on the one hand, Christ's agonizing obedience, and on the other hand, his disciples' willful weakness. This is why the narrative goes back and forth in these verses between Jesus alone in prayer and Jesus with his disciples challenging them to be watchful. And the key difference between Jesus and his disciples, displayed here by Matthew, is one of relational dependence. Jesus devoted himself to his Father's will, while his disciples failed to grasp their desperate need to depend upon God. This morning, we'll consider two lessons taught to us in this passage. Number one, Christ provides us with a lesson through his agonizing obedience. And number two, Christ's disciples provide us with a different kind of lesson through their willful weakness. Let us observe the instruction of the Lord. Lesson number one for us today, Christ provides us with a lesson through his agonizing obedience. 
And this is both a lesson for us in what was required by Jesus to save us and also a lesson in how to turn to God in the darkest hours. So Jesus teaches us here not only what is going to be required for him to actually purchase us out of sin and make us children of God, but he's also going to teach us here how to turn to God when things get dark. And so if things have become dark for you in your life as of late... Look to Jesus. In verses 36 and 37, Matthew sets the scene for us. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. If you recall, if you've been coming to Riverside for a while... If you recall from a few verses earlier in this chapter, Jesus had just finished his last supper with his disciples. And in verse 30, he led them from the upper room out to the Mount of Olives, it says, which was a large hill just to the east across from Jerusalem. And at the base of the Mount of Olives, on its western slope, facing the city of Jerusalem, was an olive orchard, which was likely enclosed in that day, forming a little garden which was called Gethsemane. It seems that Jesus would often take his disciples there for times of prayer and that they perhaps even encamped there at times in that quiet little garden where they could rest. And this is likely how Judas Iscariot knew precisely where Jesus would be when he came in just a few hours after this with a few soldiers. Jesus said to eight of his disciples that they were to stay there while he went a short distance away and prayed. But he took with him Peter and the two brothers, James and John, referred to here as they are in chapter 4 as the two sons of Zebedee. Now I find it fascinating that Jesus took these three men alone with him deeper into the garden where they would more vividly witness his agony. And this is not the first time Jesus had done this. For back in chapter 17, when Jesus went up on a high mountain to be transfigured into his heavenly glory, he also took with him that day Peter and James and John. These three fellows are prominent throughout the Gospels. Peter was perhaps considered the leader of this small group. And he was the disciple who, back in chapter 16, first declared Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was also the man who, in this very chapter, boasted that he would never abandon Jesus. And as we've learned, he would go on to deny Jesus three times that very night. James, according to the book of Acts, chapter 12, would become the first of Christ's disciples to be martyred for his faith. And his brother John, according to John chapter 19, would be directed by Jesus while he was on the cross to care for his mother Mary after his departure. And yet these same brothers came to Jesus with their biological mom back in chapter 20, asking that Jesus award them the highest places of authority and power and privilege when Jesus commenced his kingdom. The point is, I say all this to say that these are important disciples who came with Jesus into the inner parts of the garden, but these are also deeply flawed disciples. And Jesus, 
knowing their importance, their importance, spent extra time instructing these three, even having them near him while he wept in prayer. And with these three at his side, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Verse 37 says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This was but the beginning of his agony. An anguish that would continue up until the point when at last he surrendered his life on the cross. This was where his suffering, which was known throughout church history as his passion, truly began here in the garden. For in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus began to agonize over what was coming. The words here in verse 37 are not all that unusual to the New Testament. You'll find them throughout. To be sorrowful simply means to be sad or distressed or grieved. To be troubled is to experience a certain level of anxiety and distress in your heart and your mind. But when you couple these two words together and then you consider that these words describe the emotional condition of the Son of God himself, you begin to realize that this was a sorrow and a trouble unlike any that had otherwise been seen. As R.T. France put it, this was an anguish of wretchedness. This is as low as it gets. And so... In verses 38 and 39, we find Jesus acquainted with terrible grief. It says in verse 38, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Three times back in chapter 6 in this gospel, Jesus told his audience, do not be anxious. And yet here we find Jesus in utter despair. My soul is very sorrowful even to death, he says. But unlike his instructions in chapter 6, he was not concerned here about things like food or drink or clothing or any material needs for his life. Instead, Jesus was deeply grieved about a pending separation. You have to understand something about Jesus Christ. You will not get the Gospels. You will not get Jesus if you don't understand this. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God was unique here in his suffering. He had only ever enjoyed perfect fellowship, seamless intimacy, and unbroken communion with the Father God. Indeed, in his coming to earth, he had taken on human flesh and he had welded together forever his divine nature with his human nature but this relational bliss with the Father was never altered or broken at any point. This relationship was always the delight of the Father God, and it was always the delight of the Son of God. For the Father says in Matthew 17, verse 5, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
As Jesus himself declared in John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Their relational bond is deep, profound, unlike any that has ever been seen. These are words of unmatched, unbroken, and perfect relational depth. My friends, for Jesus, the deepest most intense, most horrifying agony of the cross was not the abandonment by his disciples. It was not the betrayal of Judas. It was not the mocking by the Jews or the shame put upon him by the Roman soldiers. It was not the false sentence of death that was awarded to him it was not the bearing of his cross to Golgotha. It was not the nails pounded through his feet and through his hands. And it was not the hours-long agony of having his breath be taken from him while he struggled in moment after excruciating moment to prop himself up just to get air. For Jesus... The worst agony of the cross was the horrendous separation that occurred between him and his father. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, while Jesus is on the cross, it says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the moment, my friends, when all of my sin guilt was placed upon Jesus. And because my sins were placed upon him, the Father God who cannot look upon sin and who cannot abide its presence but must judge it, turned his face away from his son while baptizing him with the full weight of the judgment that I deserve. Instead of experiencing the joy of the Father, Jesus fully experienced the full wrath of the Father which I deserved. And here we find the Son of God falling down on his face in the garden, stricken with agonizing sorrow over what was about to come. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death, he said. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Even to death, he says. For in Luke's account of Christ's prayer in the garden, in Luke chapter 22, he mentions that an angel was sent to Jesus from heaven in order to strengthen him. For even his sweat became like drops of blood. His capillaries began to burst and he began to sweat blood. My friends, Jesus in his passion is the truest and most horrible picture of sorrow and agony that could ever be seen, and he did it for me. In verse 39, while prostrate on the ground, face in the dirt, he pleads with his father, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus uses the most affectionate term imaginable, Pater mu, my father, as he asks him if there is any other way. You see, before the 
foundation of the world itself, the triune God made a covenant together to redeem the very humanity they would create which would fall into sin. And there would be only one way for this covenant to be kept and for sinners like us to be redeemed, the shed blood of his son Jesus. The only way for God to keep his commitment to redeem a people for himself is for his son to shed the blood, the only right payment for sinners like his people. But Jesus, in his lowly humanity, asks the Father essentially here if there is any other way any other possible avenue other than what lies before me, please take that and let this cup pass from me. This cup, it is a reference, a metaphorical cup, a reference to that which was spoken by the prophets like Isaiah and which needed to be drunk fully by God's perfect son in order to bear the wrath for sinners like me and you. This cup of wrath had to be drunk by the son who never committed a single wrong. Understand, when Jesus asked the father for any possible alternative, he's asking from his lowly humanity and not from his glorious divinity. We don't comprehend that, the idea of having a divine nature welded to a human nature. But Jesus asked these questions. He pours out his heart in agony in his human nature. In the mystery that is the God-man, Jesus Christ, we at times see him showing his humble dependence through his human nature, even as he experiences all the emotions and all the trauma of being a man. The Apostle Paul spoke to this. In Philippians 2, verse 8, he said, And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself, he made himself obedient, even to the point that he would go to the cross and surrender his life. But notice, Jesus, in his humanity, was unlike any other human. He was utterly committed to obeying the Father God and what he had commanded him. He said, not as I will, but as you will. The Son of God went willingly to the cross for you and for me out of obedience to his Father. They had made the decision. The Son was there. Now it was time. He would go through with it. He would obey out of love. He would lay his life down, and he would experience the most horrible separation that he could ever imagine, being separated even for a moment from God the Father himself. And he did that for me and for you. In verse 42 and 44, after twice leaving his sleeping disciples, Jesus persisted in this unhappy prayer. He didn't do this just once. Verse 42, look there, look there with me. He says, Matthew says, again for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44, so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. This tells us two things, at least, I think. Number one, Jesus pled with his father for another way over and over again, showing remarkable perseverance in his petition. He kept going back to the Father and pleading, is there any other way? 
We see that here. But then we also see, secondly, that he said the same words each time. Jesus expressed his willing obedience to the Father over and over and over again. He pours out his heart for an hour to the Lord, goes back, sees his sleeping disciples, comes back again, pours his heart out for another hour to the Lord, goes back, sees his friends asleep on the floor, returns again and pours out his heart again. And all the while, every one of his prayers is finished with, not my will, but yours be done. But there would be no avenue open to Jesus but the cross. My dear friends, do you realize that Jesus agonized in his obedience for your sake? Do you recognize that Jesus endured not just the pain, the physical pain, not just the emotional turmoil and the sorrow and the embarrassment, not just the disgusting attitude of others who hated him, not just the nails, not just the suffocation, not just the bleeding, he, and not just the separation from the Father. All of that together, he went through all of that. He agonized for you because out of a loving obedience, he put you before himself and loved you. What a God. Do you recognize that? In a world full of prideful people who will not bend the knee to God, do you recognize how much your God bent low for you? And do you also see the example of how we should pray in our many life moments of sorrow and despair? Pour out the heart to God again and again returning to it. And yet at the end saying, Lord, I don't know all things. I don't understand it all. Not my will be done, but yours. Not as I will, but as you will. You see it all, you know it all, your plan is best. I trust you, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Do you see the example here of how to pray in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of darkness? Do you see? That's lesson one. Lesson two, Christ's disciples provide us with a different kind of lesson through their willful weakness. And this is a clear lesson in what not to do in our darkest hours. If you have the example of Jesus, and if you're empowered by the Spirit, you can follow his path. You can do that. You can follow Jesus' example in God's strength. But then you have his example over here of the disciples. And this is an example of what not to do. If you want to know what not to do when times get tough, when days get dark, this is where you look. This is what not to do. In verse 40 and 41, Christ's disciples are not watchful, and he rebukes them. <coughs> verse 40, and he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Back in verse 38, Jesus told them to watch with me. These are imperatives, directives for what they were to do. And to watch, as we learn in verse 41, was connected to diligence and seriousness in prayer. It wasn't just stay awake, it was stay awake and pray. But they did not obey him 
or recognize their tremendous need, which is a wonderful recipe for failure. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes for just a moment. Their Jesus, our Jesus, their Jesus, who had just told them during the supper that night that one of the twelve brothers would betray him. And he had told them that the cup which they drank that night was somehow symbolic of the blood that he would very soon spill out. And he told them in verse 31 that they would all fall away that night. This Jesus, this Jesus told these men to be watchful and to be busy in prayer. Oh, Christians, there are some nights in life where prayer is far more important than sleep. This is one of them. But when Jesus came back, there they were, asleep on the garden floor. In verse 40, Jesus addressed Peter, but he actually does so in the Greek plural form, which tells us that he meant for the rest of them to also hear it when he asked them, could you not watch with me one hour? He says it to Peter, but he also says it to the whole. On this night, this night of all nights, men, could you not watch with me just for a little while? I think one of the reasons Jesus had these three men go further into the garden with him, I can't prove this, but I think this is the case. The reason why, I think, one of the reasons why he had these three men go further into the garden with him is that he desired their company in that moment. Verse 38 says, watch with me. Stay awake with me, brothers. But even that comfort, the comfort of friends joining him in prayer, was deprived of Jesus that awful night. When Jesus expressed the words, could you not watch? He was in the original language literally saying, do you not have the power even to do this simple thing? Are you not even able? Do you not have the power? Oh, a few weeks ago, we saw the boastful, self-sufficient words of Peter but here Jesus tells him that on his own, he didn't even have enough power to stay awake, let alone stand strong in the face of the coming persecution. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Spirit here is not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but to the inner heart life of the disciples. Their spirits in their hearts in their good desires, they wanted to stand strong for Jesus. In verse 35, if you remember, all the disciples echoed Peter's words and declared, I will never deny you. Their spirits were stout. They expressed commitment to the Lord. But their flesh was weak. The flesh in the New Testament, and especially in the Apostle Paul's writings, is that still broken part of Christians that struggles and opposition towards God. It's the sinful inclination that believers still face and must battle each and every day. As Paul wrote in Romans 7 verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
The flesh is the sinful desire which competes daily against the new hearts which God has awarded his people by grace. The disciples' problem was that they had stout spirits and boastful mouths, but they were extremely weak against their fleshly desires and incredibly susceptible to temptation when the time for persecution came. On a night when prayer was the only wise activity, instead of helping each other, working together as disciples in the struggle of prayer together, they each went to sleep and they obeyed their competing desires in their flesh. And on a night when they declared that they would never deny Christ, never abandon Him, they failed to recognize their need for God's help to stand strong in the face of great darkness. And because they did not pray, because they remained self-sufficient, they continued in weakness, and every one of them shamefully fell away. In verse 43, we learn the reason why His disciples remained in their weakness. It says, and again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Their eyes were heavy. Translation, they were just tired out. These men were worn out, perhaps thinking about all of the things that Jesus had said, perhaps considering the weight that was about, weight of things that was about to occur, perhaps simply because it was late at night. These guys are just exhausted. But Luke's account tells us something in addition to this, something which I think we can also relate to. In Luke's account of this garden prayer, it says in Luke twenty-two forty-five that when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. Their exhaustion was combined with their sorrow. Can you imagine in the garden late at night, Jesus, maybe a stone's throw away, and you hear him sobbing. The one who that week had brought Lazarus back from the dead. Can you imagine hearing that? And then you couple that with all of the other emotions, all of the other fears, and then the body that just wants to sleep, and you can get it. Sometimes depressed people just want to go to sleep. This is not an excuse for these men, but I bet, I just bet, that just about every one of us here, just about every Christian here, can relate to what these men did. I bet if we put ourselves in their shoes, we'd be sleeping on the garden floor. In their self-trust, they chose to not depend upon God in prayer. And we must let what happened with these men teach us that we might instead walk in wisdom. Because there are times when we must turn to God in prayer and we must not rely upon ourselves. And those times are daily. In verses 45 and 46, when the time for prayer had passed, Jesus rebuked his disciples one last time. Verse 45, then he came to the disciples and he said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There was no longer opportunity to pray. For Judas and the soldiers were beginning to walk up the hill. Brothers and sisters in Christ, 
do you see the path to avoid here? There is an ongoing, constant temptation that is like a fire that is fueled even more so by contemporary American culture which puts one obnoxious form of entertainment before our eyes after another, one distraction before our path after another, and it takes that fire and it inflames us into a deep-seated self-dependence so that we come on a Sunday and we pray, I surrender all, all I need is Jesus, but then we go and live our lives like we don't need him one bit. Do you see the path to avoid here? What Jesus needs from you is not a greater ability. What Jesus needs from you is not boastfulness. What Jesus needs from you is not expressions of commitment. Though we sing songs like that, and that's wonderful that we sing songs like that, that's ultimately not what Jesus needs from you. What Jesus needs from you is a heart that bends the knee and says, I need your help. And do you also see, my friends, that if that's true, just how much we need each other? Can you imagine if Peter would have done the leader thing? If he just said to James and John, brothers, I am tired, I'm worn out, and I can't stand listening to him sob anymore. Let's start praying. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if they had started asking God for help together? And when one got tired, the other one built him up. They came together as Christian brothers and helped each other in prayer. Can you imagine that? It's the very thing they're going to do in the book of Acts. They're going to learn from this lesson, praise God. Do we learn from this? As Tim mentioned during the pastoral prayer, we are trying to pray corporately every month, and that's not the only time we pray. We pray in our small groups. We pray in our own. I, I hope you pray daily as families. But there are times when God's people come together and God's people are needed to come together and to pray. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you understand that the power of the church, though it's certainly found in the proclaimed word, the power of the church is just, just as importantly found in God's people when they come for prayer. If we want to know how healthy Riverside is, we don't look around and see how many people are in the room. We see how many people are committed to pray together. Because when we're committed to pray together, look out. What stops Riverside from advancing in the gospel? After learning these contrasting lessons, let me address three kinds of people today by asking you three somewhat daring questions. First, are you a sinner? If, you're not, if you don't think you're a sinner, could I buy you lunch this week? I don't mean that as a joke. I would love to buy you lunch and show you what God's word says and then talk about how much I'm a sinner, not how much you're a sinner. And I, I think maybe you'll agree. But let me ask you, are you a sinner? If you admit this, then just consider the commitment of God to his own glory through your salvation. The Savior obediently endured the agony required for your sin. He endured the shame that you should endure. He took the punishment that you should face. He died the death that you deserve. And he experienced the separation that you should forever experience. Jesus did that for you. 
And the only right response is to receive Jesus by repenting and believing. By saying, my sin is wretched before God. I don't want it. I believe in Jesus. Oh, Lord God, Jesus Christ, help me to walk with you. And when you turn to Jesus and accept his gift of salvation in the gospel, your sins are washed away. And so that now when I ask, are you a sinner, you could say yes and no. Yes, because I still struggle with sin, so thereby definition, I still am a sinner. But no, in the sense that God has declared me righteous in Jesus Christ. The only right response is to receive Jesus in repentance faith. Sinner, will you accept Jesus? The second thing I want to ask is, are you suffering? If you are, then recognize who you have with Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if he indeed is your Savior and Lord. The Savior obediently endured for you. The Savior has faithfully encountered more sorrow and more trouble than you and I could ever face or even imagine. And through this, he can now help us in every one of our weaknesses. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 14, 15, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to fall on your face in agony over life, in agony over the pending loss of his life, in agony over the pending loss of the greatest relationship that could ever be. Sufferer. Won't you look to Jesus? Why would you turn away from Christ and his people when you go through darkness? That's the very opposite thing to do. The answer is not to retreat to yourself, go off to your little spot and sleep away your life. The answer is to press in to Jesus and his people that you might stand strong. It doesn't mean the pain's going to go away, but it does mean that there will be an inner joy and there will be a strength that will be supplied that can't be taken from you until the day you see Jesus face to face. Do you see who you have, sufferer? Won't you look to Jesus? And then third, are you a struggling Christian today? If you are, then please know that you do not have to remain in your fleshly weakness. You do not have to remain under its sway. Your fleshly weakness does not have to win out in your life. You will battle it, but it does not have to win. The disciples provide us with a passage that is a clear object lesson regarding what not to do in our weakness. Their poor example directs us to do the very opposite, to do the other thing, to cling tight together, helping each other in prayer as we face the dark and the foreboding days that are ahead of us. Oh, my friends, are you struggling as a Christian? Are you struggling in your attempts to be holy? Are you struggling in your attempts to share the gospel with other people, to have conversations with them about Jesus? Are you struggling to love your wife, to appreciate your husband, to be diligent with your kids? Are you struggling 
to be patient when you're in traffic? Are you struggling in life? Then my friends understand there is King Jesus right there at your side who not only go, shows you again and again in his word his wonderful accomplishment for you in the gospel, but he keeps pointing you back to his people gathered in prayer. Oh, please turn into his people. Please turn into Christ. Shall we pray together, Christians? I'm thankful that Jesus is such a teacher. It is in the hardest lessons that we're able to see and learn the most. And I'm thankful that even as he was preparing for the cross, our Lord was willing to point out what is necessary for us in life, to cling to him in faith, and to continue to look to him in prayer. Oh, let us do so together constantly. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we're thankful that your son was willing to be so sorrowful that it was even to the point of death. We're so thankful that he was willing to take the mock, that he was willing to endure the beatings, that he was willing to bleed and die on the cross for us, that he was willing to bear our sins upon himself, even as the song says, the Father turned his face away. We're so thankful that Jesus was willing to do this. It is both gruesome and glorious, and we thank you. I pray that you would make us strong worshipers, Lord, in light of this, and that, Father, as worshipers, humbly bowing in glad recognition of what the Son has done, that we would see again our weakness, that we would be refreshed in our insights, Father, that we have great need, and that we together would come before you always in prayer. I ask this in Jesus' name.